Good morning and Boker Tov. Welcome back everyone to Parsha Perspectives for today. So grateful as always to our generous sponsors, dear friends Avi and Becky Katz and family, in loving memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, the Nishmas David Ben Menachem Manish. Thank you for your generosity. Also, this Parsha Shir is sponsored by Elaine J in honor of the 45th year site of her father, Mordechai Ben Yitzchak Feigenbaum. Allah Shalom. His Neshama should have an Aliyah. Thank you as well for your generosity. We have the uh, privilege of studying together Parshas of Vayishlach as we continue to make our way through Sefer Bereshis, the story, the narrative of the formation of our family with its ups and its downs, with its function and its dysfunction, with its challenges and its uh, complications. And uh, we continue where the story had last left off. Parshas Vayishlach can be found in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash on page 170. Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim Lefarav Al-Isav Achiv Edom. Yaakov is now about to reunite with his brother. He's going to reunite with Esav, and he fears for his life, of course, because Esav is an adversary. Esav is a foe. They've had a very uh, competitive and contentious relationship all along. Esav perceives that Yaakov stole the bracha from him, and that Yaakov tried to assert himself over Esav, and therefore he does a lot to prepare. Now there's a lot, a lot, a lot to talk about on this uh, parsha, on the opening of this parsha, and we spent last year our parsha class discussing the opening fupsukim, how Yaakov planned and what he was worried about, and katonti mikolach hasadim, how he felt perhaps diminished from all of the goodness that Hashem had shown him, and somehow as if he was unworthy. And, uh, and so if you want to see more about that, I refer you to last year. I want to try to get into some other, some other things uh, this year. So Paraklamid Bey's so Yaakov, anticipating this reunion, appoints messengers. And he says, I want you to go in advance. I want you to go and I want you to meet Esav. And I want you to go and represent me in advance. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell him, call Marav Yaakov. This is what your, your uh, master Yaakov says. We haven't met each other. We haven't seen each other because I was living with Lavan. 14 years in Yeshiva Shem. The Aver Yaakov stopped. Another 20 years he's living with Lavan. So it's been 34 years before they have this reunion. I've been occupied. I've been busy. I've been working for a living. I've been working for wives. In Lavan Garti, I was living with him. And I've been delayed. I've lingered until now. We haven't had a chance to have this reunion to reconcile until now. Rashi famously tells us on the words of Lavan Garti, Lest you think that the reason I was delayed, I was hung up, is because I became some prominent, some esteemed individual, some distinguished diplomat, prince or leader. No, Eleger, Garti. I was a Ger, I was a stranger, I was a foreigner, I was a sojourner. We're about to reunite. He sends this agent, this messenger, give Ace of the message. Don't hate your brother thinking that he has risen, he's elevated to some position of stature, to, that he has some celebrity status, that in fact the bracha that our father gave him, that our father gave me, Yaakov is saying in his words, has come true. It has not come true through me. Rather, Garti, Ger, I've been a wanderer, I'm an outsider, I don't really belong. And Rashi then throws in Acher Garti, Garti in Gamatri is Taryag. The word Garti, I lived, I sojourned, I traveled, I journeyed, is the same numerical value, the same Gamatri as Taryag. Klomar, his message was, in Lavan Harasha Garti, the Taryag Mitzvah Shemarti. I lived with love on the wicked one, but I never, ever compromised. 
I kept and I observed Tarek Mitzvahs. I never learned from his evil ways. I never learned from his negativity. I never learned from that which he taught. So first of all, in the word Garati Revol Baraitin Shirei Chumash, we mentioned this last year in the name of Rabbi Salavechik. The Rav has it in his Chumash. This year we'll mention it in the name of Revolba and Shirei Chumash on our parsha. But he points out that the word Garti is not Yashafti. Yaakov does not send a message saying, Yashafti, I lived with. Because that would suggest that he had some level of comfort. It wasn't he was living, it wasn't he resided, it wasn't that he integrated or that he was absorbed. But rather, Garti. The word Ger means a foreigner, a sojourner, an outsider. And what he was telling him is, you should know the reason Taryag Mitzvah Shamarti says Revolba, how was I able to do it? How did I avoid assimilating and integrating? How did I maintain with resolve and tenacity my values, my priorities, my principles, that of our parents that we learn, says Yaakov Tesav. You know how Taryag Mitzvah Shamarti? You know how I was able to do it? Because Garti, because I always saw myself as an outsider. I always saw myself as passing through. I always saw myself as not really or fully or truly belonging. And because of that, I was successful. I clung to who I am, who we are. And this message of Revolva is a very powerful message for all of us today, that we are living in a country which is not hostile, quite the opposite. It's loving and it's inviting and it's welcoming. I wrote an article a couple of weeks ago that in the past, our enemies have tried to destroy us with hate. And now we're destroying ourselves because with love, we are invited to integrate, to assimilate, to be absorbed, to fully belong, to yashavti, to be a toshav, to be a full resident with full status. And we need to be have a healthy dose of garti, of being a ger. We need to remind ourselves that if we're going to succeed in living tariq mitzvos, if we're going to succeed in maintaining a vibrant and devoted and committed and enthusiastic Jewish life, then garti, then yes, we contribute to and we take from the beautiful society in which we live, but we do so with a mentality and an attitude with a status of garti, that I don't ever fully belong, I don't ever fully integrate, that I remain to some degree, I remain to some degree an outsider. So says Ravolba, how is it, Tarek Mitzvah Shamarti? Because in Lavan, only garti, not Yashafti. But I want to talk to Rav, go to Rav Druk. This year we've been focusing on the wonderful Svarim, Eish Tamed by Rav Yisrael Meir Druk. Magnificent set of Svarim. And he quotes this Rashi and he asks, We all know this Rashi. Who doesn't know this Rashi? In Lovangarti, Tarek Mitzvah Shamarti, it rhymes, the Gematria works out, it's a perfect thing for a kid's parasha sheet. We all know this Rashi. We all know this Rashi. But ask Rav Druk the question that maybe didn't occur to many of us, or at least we didn't think to ask, which is, why exactly is Yaakov sending this message to Esav? Do you think that Esav will be impressed by this message? Two twin brothers, they have a falling out, they have a fight. One goes to Israel for the year and flips out, frums out. The other one is off, pursuing their hedonistic lifestyle. And now it's time to reunite and reconcile. So the brother coming back from his year in Israel is going to say, send the message in advance. Listen, not looking for a fight, not looking for conflict or tension. Let's figure this out. Let's work this out. And by the way, in case you have any questions about me, I have gotten really from stark, tariq mitzvahs, chumras and all. Esav's going to be impressed. Esav, the ish yodeh atzayid, ish sada. If Yaakov says, listen, I learned how to shoot a gun, a bow and arrow. 
I've become a hunter like you. I'm a man of the field. I checked out all the national parks. We have so much to talk about, Esav. We now have so much in common in these 34 years. I've learned a lot. Why does he think that Esav is going to be impressed by sending the message, Tariyag mitzvah shamarti? That doesn't impress Esav. Esav's not religious. Esav's antagonistic to religion. Esav's unimpressed by religion. So Rav Druk quotes his father. Avi Mori Zatzal, his father, the Drash Mordechai. Rav Mordechai Druk Zatzal. Esav is a fraud. Esav is a fake. When Esav wanted to impress his parents all along, he presented himself like the pig sticks out its split hooves but doesn't chew its cud. Esav would ask halachic questions with an effort to impress the audience, in this case his father, to suggest that he is somehow vigilant and scrupulous in observance of mitzvahs. So he would ask, for example, how do you take tithes, how do you take meiser on tevin, on straw or on salt? He would ask on things that halachically you're not required to tithe, but he would invoke tithing. It's kind of like bageling his own father or the Jews who have a little knowledge, which is a dangerous thing. So they know a few terms, they know a few halachas, they know a few sayings of chazal, and they invoke them whenever they can. Why? Because you look more religious, you look more righteous, you look like you belong, you look like you got a, a fast pass to the world to come. If you could keep reusing those few Jewish expressions that you know. So that was Esav. Esav was not the real deal. Behind closed doors, Esav was inconsistent, but he liked to present himself. He liked to create an impression on others as if he was observant. And we have a tendency, said Rav Mordechai Druk, we tend to project onto others the way we are. We assume that others behave or are motivated or rationalize the way we do. What we think in our own mind, the conversations in our own head, we assume others are having in their head. So said Rav Mordechai Druk, Yaakov So Esav says, yeah, Yaakov, I got it. You're the righteous kid. We grew up, I was the troublemaker, I was always suspended. You were the goody two-shoes, you were in the honor society. I got it. You were trying to impress mom and dad. I was trying to impress mom and dad. But let's be honest. The reality is both of us are probably faking it. Both of us are frauds. Both of us are imposters. So Yaakov sends this message ahead to Esav and he says, No. Yaakov sends his message ahead and he says, Listen, Esav, I want you to know, without judgment, you're who you are. God bless you. But me, I'm the real deal. I'm consistent. I'm constant all the way through. I didn't behave one way when we were in front of mom and dad. I didn't act one way when we were in yeshiva. And then the moment I graduated our home or the moment I graduated our yeshiva, I then became who I really was all along. No, I've been consistent. I am and I believe and I behave what the way I do because it's who I am, not to impress others. And what Yaakov was trying to communicate to Esav is, I really deserve those brachos. I'm really the destiny. The future of our father is really through me. Because let's admit it, you're an imposter. You don't really believe it. 
And the evidence is, the moment that you were away from mom and dad, the moment you escaped them, you behaved however you wanted. But I, I'm consistent all the way through. So if there's anyone who's going to receive the mantle, if there's anyone who's going to take the baton to be able to pass it forward, it's going to be me. That was the message. So Rav Druk asked, Tariq Mitzvah Shemarti, Esav's going to care? Esav's going to be impressed? Tell him that you won, you know, you were the captain of the basketball team. Tell him you won the intramural league. Tell him you became a hunter. Tell him you know how to shoot a bow and arrow. Tariq Mitzvah Shemarti, that's what's going to impress Esav? And the answer is no. What will impress Esav is to make contact, to be exposed to somebody who's real, who's authentic, who's genuine, who's consistent, who's toho kabara, the outside and the inside, they, 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 are, they are consistent, they are the same. Generally, a person sees the other and evaluates and measures the other as a mirror, according to the way we are. We assume that the way we behave and what motivates us and who we are and how we rationalize is the same conversation everyone else is having in their head. And that's what was being and that's what was being corrected. But Rav Druk, the son, Rav Yisrael Meir, Druk, the author of the Ishtamid, has a different interpretation. And I love it. And I can't wait to share it with you this morning. I'm so happy that you're here to learn it with me. And he says the following, says Rav Yisrael Meir, Druk, I want to offer us another suggestion. And I want to explain it based on the Gemara. And we all know this story. It's a Gemara in Shabbos, Lamed Aleph. That there was once a non-Jew, a Gentile, who came before Hillel, the elder. He stood on one foot and he said, teach me the whole Torah on one foot. This book, what is it all about? Teach me the whole thing and teach it to me on, on one foot. What's it really all about? What's it really saying? So what did Hillel answer? If you were unmuted, you could all say it once in unison because you know. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. And what you don't want done, don't do to others. And the rest is commentary. You want to know the whole Torah on one foot? It's easy. It'll take one moment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't do unto others what you wouldn't have done. If he was really making a joke, if he was really a farce, what do you need Hillel? And if he really wanted to convert, why didn't Hillel really say, okay, let's start. Let me teach you mitzvahs. What's really going on in this story? So he says we can explain based on an insight of the Orachayim HaKadosh. The Orachayim HaKadosh says, Hashem commanded every Jew, Tariq Mitzvahs. You open the Torah, and the Monea Mitzvahs, the Gemara at the end of Makos, tells us we have a tradition, 613, combination of every Jew's luggage and every Jew's um, briefcase. If it doesn't work, try 1967, and you'll get in any Jewish lock. Tariq Mitzvahs, the Gemara Makos tells us that we have a commandment, 613 Mitzvahs. So we have a tradition that we've been commanded 613 mitzvahs, but we cannot find an individual who himself or herself would in fact be obligated or even be able to fulfill all 613. Men and women. Kohen, Levi, Yisrael. Time of the base of Mikdash, no base of Mikdash. Karbonos, no Karbonos. In Israel, outside of Israel. It's impossible. You cannot wind one person who themselves can either volunteer or be obligated in all of them. The answer is that achieving the level of Tariq Mitzvos for Klal Yisrael, for the Jewish people to actually get to a place where they are fulfilling Tariq Mitzvos, it can only be done in combination. It can only be done in cooperation. 
It can only be done in community. You have to have a sense of community. So the Kohen's doing what the Kohen needs to do, and the Levi does what the Levi needs to do, and the Israel does what the Levi. The Jews of the diaspora, and the Jews of Eretz Israel, the Jews of this and the Jews of that. And then in combination, in cooperation, with a sense of community, then and only then can you really fulfill Tariq Mitzvah. And says Rav Druk, that's what Hillel was answering the convert. You want all Torah on one foot? It's going, to take, it's going to take the cooperation and the collaboration of all of the Jewish people. Because not, no one person, this is the Orachayim. The Orachayim says, no one Jew can either volunteer or be obligated in all Tariq Mitzvahs. So if you want to get to the level of Tariq Mitzvahs, it's going to take tremendous sense of cooperation. It cannot be done alone. And that's You want the whole Torah one foot? Here it is. Be connect and combine with others. And that's what was going on. So says Rav Druk, let's take this Arachayim and let's apply it to Yaakov Avinu. That's what Yaakov was saying. Why did Yaakov send these angels, these messengers? Rashi says, they're not angels. These are actual physical messengers. He's sending agents, ambassadors ahead. And he gives the reason why. The goal was, you know, feel them out. Break the ice. Make some comfort level. How could he have said, I fulfilled all Tariq Mitzvahs? It's impossible. No one Jew can do it all. Really, it's only going to be because we are a community and collaboration. So the same way, Yaakov, so Yaakov was embedding a message for Esav, says Rav Druk. He was embedding a message. And what was the message he was embedding? In Lavan Garti, I lived with Lavan. V'tariag mitzvah shamarti, and I observed all taryag. Ay, how can one Jew observe all taryag? It's impossible. It means I lived with Lavan, but I didn't live selfishly. I didn't live egotistically. I didn't live only about myself. Tariag mitzvah shamarti, I brought an attitude of collaboration community, cooperation, and the same way I did that to achieve fulfilling Tariq Mitzvos, I want to create collaboration and cooperation with you, my brother. I want to reconcile. I want to come together. So Yaakov was embedding this message of reconciliation and cooperation within the words Tariq Mitzvah Shamarti, which are impossible for any one or singular Jew to achieve themselves. But it's the next shot in Rav Druk that I'm really excited to share with you. He again, he quotes uh, Rashi here, Tariq Mitzvah is in Lavan Garti, Garti is Gematria Tariq, Tariq Mitzvah Shamarti. And he now says the following. Another question. You've heard and read this Rashi a million times. You may not have asked any of these questions. But this is his next question. We already just spoke about you can't do it all by yourself. But there's another question. Yaakov says, Im Lavangarti, which is the Gematria Tarig Mitzvos, Shamarti. Why did he say Tarig Mitzvos, Shamarti? Shamarti means I guarded, I protected. What should Yaakov have said? If indeed he wanted to communicate to Asaph, I kept, I observed, I fulfilled all 613 commandments, then he shouldn't have said shamarti, I guarded, but rather he should have said kiyamti, I fulfilled. It makes more sense when talking about a mitzvah to talk about kiyam, fulfilling it, than it does to talk about shmira, protecting it. So listen to what Rav Juk says. Pasuk in Parshas Ekev says, Vaya Ekev Tishmu'un, and it will be if you heed, if you listen to these laws, and you guard and you perform them. 
then God will shamar you back. And so on and so forth. What is the Lashon there? What is the language there? If you guard and if you do, what's the difference between guarding and doing? Guard them and do them. What's the difference between guarding and doing? So says, uh, we have it there too. What do you mean? What's the difference? We find throughout Torah these words go together. Shmor to guard, protect, and asiya to do. What's the difference between the two? So, in order to answer them, the answer to them is the following. The answer to them is the following. He says, he gives one answer, I want to skip it, I want to go to the second one. He says, the answer is that the word shamar means not only to guard or protect, and it certainly doesn't mean to do. The word shamar means to anticipate, to look forward, to be excited. Sorry, I skipped. Going back. Yeah, we're going to read later in the parsha that Yaakov and Esav go their separate ways. And where does Yaakov go? So the Pasuk says, and we're going to get to this momentarily, Yaakov comes to Shechem in Canaan. And how does he arrive there? How does the Torah describe how he arrives there? He comes whole, fulfilled. And Rashi says, Shalim Begufo. He has now healed Shinas Rappe Mitzli also. He's now full in his body. He went for rehab. He had physical therapy. He recovered from the injury of the angel. Shalim Bibamano, Shalachasar Klumikol Oso Daron. He was, he made back the whole gift, all the 610 animals that he gave to Esav. The market went up. He recovered his losses. He was Shalim Bibamano. He was made whole with his money. And Shalim Bisaraso, and he was whole with his Torah. He never forgot the lessons of his father or the lessons of Yeshiva Shein Ve'ever. He held on to his learning. He was a Ben Torah, even in the home of Lavan. Ben Torah for life. So Tzarech Lahavin Madu'a Davka Kashi Yiyakul Yishchem Azayom Merlov Higiyah Shalim Shalim B'Toraso Shloshachach Tamudo. Why now when he gets to Shechem? Why now once he leaves Esav is he considered to be whole and complete when it comes to his Torah? Hanira Levar Shini Nemer B'Pasik Shmor V'Shamat is called Dvarim Ha'ila. Pasik says in Dvarim Perakid Beis Shmor. Shmor, guard, vishamata, and listen. All the things that I am commanding you. And Rashi there says, Shmor, zu This is your learning that you have to protect in your kishkas, in your gut, to never ever forget it. The learning that you put inside you, that you absorb, that transforms you, never ever forget it. Mazur bezeki lashan shmor mora al mishnah. Shmor refers to your learning, which is not external, is not academic, is not theoretical, is not scholarly, but a learning that is in fact absorbed, it's embedded, it's imbibed inside us. Learn it well, so you can safeguard and protect it. Learn it well, 
so it becomes a part of who you are, and you'll remember it and carry it forward, and it transforms you. And that's what it means, Ushmartem Asisim Rashi says, Ushmartem Zumishnah. Whenever you see the word Ushmartem, Rashi says Zumishnah. Ushmartem means not the fulfillment of mitzvos, it means the learning and the observance of mitzvos. It means how we do the mitzvos. It means how we do the mitzvos. And so therefore, similarly here, Shmor means, Tarek Mitzvah Shemarti means, it's not I fulfilled them. We already pointed out it's impossible to fulfill all 613 by ourselves. What does it mean? What does it mean, shamarti, not kiyamti? It means I learned about them. I never stopped having my mind on the mitzvos, on Torah learning. Wherever I was, on vacation, at work, in a hostile environment, in a foreign culture, or in my own home, wherever I was, tarag mitzvos, shamarti. Not kiyamti, not I fulfilled, but shamarti. I never stopped learning. I never stopped thinking. I never stopped growing. But the word shamar means something else also. And lastly, and then we'll move on, the word shamar has another connotation, like later, when Yosef is sold by his brothers and disappears, and Yaakov is inconsolable. Yaakov cannot find closure. And the Pasuk describes, V'aviv shamar es hadavar. V'aviv shamar es hadavar. What does that mean, V'aviv shamar es hadavar? It means that his father, Yaakov, held on to the matter. He looked forward to being reunited. He never gave up hope. He counted down to when they would be together. The word shamar means not to safeguard and hold. It means to protect with anticipation. You see, if there's an idea, a concept, a value, which you easily dismiss, which you don't care about, which you're casual about, then you've not protected it. You've not safeguarded it. But if there's something you're excited about, you're looking forward to, it's part of what defines you, if you hold on to it, that's to be shamar. That's what it means. Vaviv shamar sadavar, that Yaakov was inconsolable. Shamar sadavar, what was he shomer? He was shomer his son Yosef, that they would be reunited, that they'd come together again. The Apterov, the Oiv Yisrael, I've shared this many times, the Apterov, Ravav Yeshua Heshel, he writes, that's what it means to be a shomer Shabbos. Shomer Shabbos is not to observe the laws of Shabbos. Shomer Shabbos is not to keep the 39 categories of creative labor. Shomer Shabbos is not to make Kiddush and Avdallah. Shomer Shabbos, he writes, boldly, doesn't even happen on Shabbos. To observe the laws of Shabbos is not to be a Shomer Shabbos. You know what Shomer Shabbos means? When you said this morning at the end of davening, Hayom Yom Shlishi B'Shabbos. Today's not Tuesday. What's Tuesday? Today's the third day in the countdown to Shabbos. When your life is a countdown to something, that's what it means to be Shamar. Shabbos is coming. Hayom Shiyom Shlishi Shabbos. Today is the third day in the count to Shabbos. So that's what it means to be a Shomer Shabbos, as the Apterov. And that says Rav Druk is what it means. That's what it means. Tarek Mitzvah Shamarti. Tarek Mitzvah Shamarti doesn't mean, doesn't mean that I Kiyamti. Why doesn't it say Kiyamti? Why does it say Shamarti? What it means is Yaakov says, I can't wait. I'm holding on to this idea. I'm going to, I'm going to transmit it to my children and their children after them. The whole enterprise of Torah and mitzvos, this entire life and lifestyle, tarig mitzvos shamarti. I cherish it. I love it. I celebrate it. And that's also a contemporary question for us. Tarig mitzvos. None of us can fulfill all tarig mitzvos. Not because we're not um, dedicated or devoted. But you cannot simultaneously be a Kohen, a Levi, and a Yisrael, live inside Israel and outside of Israel. There is no Beis HaMikdash today. And therefore, we are precluded from 
Tarek Mitzvos Kiyamti. It's impossible to observe or fulfill all Tarek Mitzvos. Whether we want to or not, it is simply an impossibility. However, Tarek Mitzvos Shamarti, that we can all do. We can all be Shomer Tarek Mitzvos. Our attitude and our passion, our priority, what we transmit and communicate to those around us. Is it Tarek Mitzvos Kiyamti? Impossible. But Tarek Mitzvos Shamarti, this life and lifestyle, a Torah life, that is not only a possibility, but it is our responsibility. Perak Lamed Bey's Pasuk Tesvav, moving right along. Pasuk describes that Yaakov sends ahead of him with his Malach. He spends the night there and he sends these gifts to his brother. Sounds like some barbecue. 200 she-goats, 20 he-goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 nursing camels, with their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 she-donkeys, and 10 donkeys. Add it all up. Rashi says it's not even a complete list. Rashi has a tradition about an extra few that are added on top of that. And Rashi says, how many animals did Yaakov send? None other than 610. What is the significance of that number? I don't know. Not for now. 610 animals he sends to his brother Esav. Why does he send 610 animals? And how does he position those animals? What is their posture? Look at Rashi. Look at the Hei Rashi. Rashi says, Pasuk. Tesavav. Talks about how many. And why that number and what we learn from this about interpersonal relationships between a husband and a wife. Uh, 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 uh. Where's this Rashi? Yeah. Verevach tasimu. Place space between them. I stopped too soon. And Yaakov instructs his servants. He says, make sure that each of these groupings of animals that there's space, that there's margin between them. Make sure they each go separately. Leave a space, leave margin between each of these droves, between each of these units of animals. Says Rashi, Why would you have that separation? Yaakov wanted each grouping of animal to be separated, to be distinct, to be apart. Why? Because he wanted to trick Esav. You know what happens with the mind's eye? When from a distance you see the animals all spread out, it'll look like even many more, exponentially greater. Not just 610, which what's Esav going to do with 610 animals? It's enormous. Not just 610, but if you put that margin and space between it and you spread it out, it will look like even more and that will seem like even a larger gift, it'll be even more impressive, and it'll make Esav even more predisposed, even more likely to be willing to reconcile. So Rashi says, what's the goal, what's the purpose of the distancing? In order to further appease Esav, in order to give him the greater impression that that there's even more coming, he'll be more impressed, and I'll be even more likely to reunite with him. It's a marketing strategy. It is a perception issue. The Svarno gives another interpretation. And look at the Svarno. Again, we're on Perak Lamed Beis. It's the article, page 174. Perak Lamed Beis, Pasuk, Yudzayin. Lamed Beis, Yudzayin. So says, that was Rashi, says the Svarno. 
Lamed Beis Yud Zayin. Kedusha Yirsh Yesh B'Chol Min Minyan Zchar Man Kevos Kfi Haroy L'Malachas Hamiknes Sheyuchal L'Faros L'Rabos Kamro Kachnas Berchasi Shaisa Mincha Muchenes L'Bracha Shehi Tosefes Bracha. Says the Svarno. You know why he wanted him to spread it out. Each group would be alone and spread it out. So first he says, send male and female. Because he wants Esav to know you'll be able to put them together and they will propagate and promulgate and they'll be able to reproduce. And what starts out at 610, I'm sending you even much greater gift. Rashi says, spread it out. It's marketing. It looks like more. Svarna goes even more and says, no, by sending male and female, you are empowering and enabling Esav to not only receive that gift, but for it to expand even more going forward. Svarno continues, and place a revach between them, so that these different animals will not jump out of their pen, won't jump out of their grouping and intermingle. And then if somebody were to see, they would get mixed up. The onlooker wouldn't understand the wisdom of the gift and its blessing. Says the Sforno, you know why it's important to place a revach? You know why it's important? Because the Sforno is placing an emphasis on the notion of Seder, order. Be organized. Keep it together. Yaakov is not doing so because he's doing it to impress Esav. According to Rashi, this comment of Tain Revach, place margin and space between them, is all part of the strategy and effort to impress Esav. According to the Sforno, no. This is a value Yaakov has. A value of living with Seder. Be organized. Be organized. Live with order. Everything's got to be neatly and uh, laid out. And you need to have a sense of margin. That revach, that margin, is a very critical value and a very critical lesson in life. We spoke about the notion of Seder of order before Pesach, of why we celebrate freedom with Seder, with order. Because in fact, this freedom, freedom comes through discipline. You think the opposite. You think that freedom means you can be undisciplined, do what you want, enjoy life. It's the opposite. When you're disciplined with money, you have more money. When you're disciplined with time, you have more discretionary time. The more disciplined you are with your things, the longer they last. Freedom through discipline. So Yaakov was communicating according to the Tzvarno a message here. That order. You have to be organized and live with order. Put them in such a way where there's clarity, not confusion. Don't let them intermingle. Don't let them jump one to another. Don't let other people not appreciate the value and the idea of margin in our life. Margin is very important. In fact, it's a halacha. It's a halacha. This is a tangent, but a worthwhile one for a moment. A halacha in a kosher sefer Torah, tefillin and mezuzah, in stam, Torah and mezuzah and tefillin, the halacha is that the writing has to be mukav gvil. Mukav gvil means that around the letters, around the ink, has to be parchment, blank parchment. If letters run one into another, puzzle, no good, no good. Can it be salvaged? Can it be saved? You need a proper and capable and competent scribe, a sofer. But if the letters of a Torah or tefillin or a mezuzah, if the letters are touching, even if they're touching in a barely perceivable way, it will passel, it will invalidate the mezuzah, the tefillin, or the sefer Torah. The letters have to be mukav gvil. Why? There has to be margin. There has to be space. Each letter represents another Jew. 600,000 letters of the Torah, every Jew is his own life. Our lives need to be filled with margin. We need the black letters, but we also need the blank space. The blank space is the margin we live with in our lives. We live with such noise, and we live with such running one thing into the other, momentum. But it's really not momentum, it's motion sickness. We have no margin. There is no break. There are no boundaries. There are no borders. You know, why is it that every book, every safer you own, why don't they make the letters run from the edge of the page to the edge of the page, and the top to the bottom? Why are there margins in a book? It, it would save a lot of money. 
the book could be a lot shorter. Print the print, the text, over the whole page. Why is there margin? There's a chachma, there's a wisdom to the layout that publishers use when they produce books with margin because what is most appealing to the eye? The eye needs to rest, the eye needs a break, the eye needs margin. So according to the Svarna, Yaakov is, Yaakov is expressing his commitment to the concept of margin. There has to be revach, there has to be space between the uh, eider and the eider, between these groupings of the flock, between these animals, there must be a space is communicating. So Rashi says it's for Esav, marketing, to impress him. The Svarna says, there's Zachar and the cave, they're male and female animals. He's telling Esav, I'm not just sending you this group of animals, I'm sending you the possibility of their reproducing and you'll have many more enemy, more animals as well. And why does he have the space, the margin? It's Yaakov's commitment to margin. But there's a beautiful Medrash. The Medrash writes the following in Bresh's Rabbah. I'm about to reunite with Esav. Esav is an enemy and adversary. I don't know how this is going to go. This could be a tzara. It's an es tzara. It's a moment of crisis, a moment of difficulty, a moment that I need you. Hashem, if my life or the lives of my children and progeny will be filled with tzaros, please do me a favor. Space them out. Put some margin between them. Create perspective and context for them. One of the challenges of going through crisis and hard time is we begin to think that that's forever. This pandemic, these eight, nine months, I don't even know what we're at and how long it's been. It's way too long, that I know. But it begins to feel that this is a new normal and this is life forever. I have a grandson who's uh, one years old and it occurred to me the overwhelming majority of his life he has seen adults wearing masks. He doesn't know that there's such a world in which you don't have to wear a mask doesn't occur to him. He's never seen people shake hands. He doesn't see people stand within six feet of one another. He's one years old. The majority of his life, almost his entire life, has been this pandemic. Please God, he'll grow out of it and he'll learn what normalcy really looks like. But we also, like that one-year-old, can easily think that this is normalcy, that this is life. We've forgotten the ability to zoom out the lens and to see a bigger context and to see a bigger perspective and to see a bigger timeline and to know where we are on it. And that's Yaakov's tefillah, says the Medrash to Hashem. His tefillah is the same way I've spaced out these animals in anticipation of reuniting with my brother Esav. Please space out the tsaros that will come to my children and to me in life. Create a perspective and a context. Let me see them as part of a greater whole and not be too focused in on them that I can't see anything else. That's also the role of margin. You need a break. It can't feel like it's piling up and compounding and overwhelming and suffocating. There needs to be a break between them so that we can, we can reinvigorate ourselves to be able to withstand them, to be able to, to, be able to overcome them. He, he tells the angel, the uh, messengers, keep calling them angels, but they're actual messengers, he says, you're going to see my brother, he tells his messenger, when you encounter my brother, and he will ask you, saying, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And what's all of this? What is all of these property and children and people and things? What is all of this? So you're going to answer him. So it belongs to my master Yaakov, your brother who sent me to bring it to you. And he owns all of this. And these are his children, and these are his things, and so on. Rabbi Salavichik and the Rav Chumash, in the OU, Rabbi Salavichik Chumash, Rabbi Salavichik says the following. My brother Esav Yaakov told his agents, we'll ask you three questions. To whom do you belong? To whom do you as a metaphysical being, as a soul, as a spiritual being belong? And where are you going? To whom is your historical destiny committed? And to whom have you consecrated your future? What is your ultimate goal, your final objective? 
Who is your God and what is your way of life? These two inquiries are related to your identity as members of a covenantal community. However, Yaakov continued, my brother Esau will also ask a third question. And for whom are these before you? Are you ready to contribute your talents, capabilities, and efforts towards the, mater- towards the material and cultural welfare of the general society? Are you willing to pay taxes to develop and industrialize the country? This third inquiry is focused on the temporal aspects of life. So Rabbi Soloveitchik interprets these three questions not as being mundane. They're not simply a common courtesy. Asa is not just asking, you know, who are you, where are you going? But these are actually existential questions that Esav is trying to understand. Who has Yaakov become? And what is the life that he's living? And the Rav doesn't write it, but he's Kibiyochel telling us that these are the questions that are asked to each and every one of us. I spoke under a chuppah on Sunday and I told the young Hassan and Kala that in that moment, in this transitional moment in their life, they too are asked these questions. Lumiata, where do you come from? Parents, grandfriends, what are your roots? And Vana Seleich, and where are you going? What is your mission? What is your ambition? What are your aspirations in life? And all the things that you have, all the resources and the strength and the skills, all the material possessions, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to channel it? How are you going to make the world a better place with it? Why do you have it? These are the questions that are asked, not just from Esav to the messengers of Yaakov, but these are the questions that are asked to each and every one of us. Yaakov told his agents to answer the third question in the positive. It is a gift sent to the master. We feel obligated to enrich society with our creative talents, to be constructive and useful citizens. Yet in regard to the first two questions, he commanded his representative to reply in the negative, clearly and precisely, boldly and courageously. He commanded them to tell Esav that their soul, their personality, their metaphysical destiny, their spiritual future and sacred commitments belong exclusively to God and his servant Yaakov. Are not just three questions that were asked from Esau towards Yaakov. These are the three questions that are asked towards us and to which we all need to formulate answers. They reunite Yaakov and Esau. I want to get on in the Parsha. They reunite and Esau challenges his brother. They have this encounter. He hugs and he kisses. There's dots on top of the word, Vayishakeyu. We have the literal, he kissed him, but we also have the tradition that it was insincere, he was trying to kill him. Rashi quotes one, that he too was the son of Yitzchak and Rivka. Esav had a soul, there was a spark, there was a, a, a inside of him of where he came from. And there was sincerity in that moment, there was authenticity by Yivku, that he cried. Even this, this hunter, even this jock, even this athlete, even this Esav had a soft spot inside of him. Even he broke down in tears. Even he was capable of crying in that moment. Rashi quotes that Chazal. So they raise their eyes and they see all of this. And, and uh, Esav inquires. So Esav answers. He says, all this, my stuff. I have a lot. Take what you have. I don't need Yeshli Rav. Esav says, I have seven cars and four vacation homes and three Lear jets. Yeshli Rav, I have a lot. I'm good to go. I'm not going to try to take from you. But Yomar Yaakov, so Yaakov says, uh, they have a back and forth. And what's Yaakov's response? When Esav asks him about his life, Yaakov doesn't say, Yeshli Rav, I have a lot. What does Yaakov say? Yeshli Kol. Yeshli Kol. I've got everything. I've got everything. That's a contrast. The Esav mentality is Yeshli Rav. I have a lot. I can never have enough. I always want more. No matter how much I have, I have a lot, but it's never enough. I always want more. And the Yaakov mentality, the Yaakov attitude is, Yeshli Kol. Whatever I have, I have everything. Because it's what was destined for me. It's what God determined is the right thing for me. Where did Yaakov get that from? That attitude, that lesson, 
that that approach of Yeshli Kol. Where did he get that from? He got that from none other than, of course, his father Yitzchak, who got it from his father Avram. We're not going to spend the time on this now. There's a beautiful um, in Oros Hachuva. Rav Cook explains the mentality of of Kol, the attitude of what I have. Pasuk says Avram Zakim Baba Yamim. And Hashem Berachas Avram Bakol. Avram had Kol. What is Kol? So the Ibn Ezra there says, He had a lot of things. He spells out what the Kol is. But other interpretations say, no, no. Yeshli Kol means that Avram had a mentality, a philosophy, an approach, an attitude towards life of having everything. He had a very panoramic view of the world. And he saw the way it all worked together. And he understood that Hashem was pulling the strings and he was the one behind it. And no matter what he had or he was lacking. Because when does it say Berachas Avram Bakol? When does Avram begin this attitude of Kol? Once he's lost Sarah. He's lost his life partner, his other or better half. And that's when he says, I have everything. It's in that moment that he feels he has everything. Because he sees the world operating with synthesis, in harmony, a panoramic view of the whole world. And he takes that Kol and he hands it off to Yitzchak. Avram takes a sense of Kol and he gives that bracha to Yitzchak. It's not a coincidence that when Yishmael is born, the Torah warns us that Yishmael is... Yado Bakol, that his hand will be upon that sense of coal. Yishmael is trying to fight, destroy goodness and optimism and hope and synthesis. That Yishmael, the whole life is to introduce tension and conflict. Yado Bakol, but Yad Kol Bo. We stubbornly hold on to our attitude of coal. Even though Yishmael is trying to compromise or corrupt the coal, Yado Bakol, Yad Kol Bo, we hold on to it. It says, Vayitain Avram is kol Avram took this coal and he gave it to Yitzchak. And now Yitzchak gave it to Yaakov. Yaakov says, Yeshli coal. I have everything. Very, very fundamental. Uh, and what, what do we ask for? When we bench, each time in benching we say, Hashem should bless us, the coal asherlanu. Bless the sense of coal that we have. Bless, the, bless this tradition of coal that we've been given. The ability to look at life and say, whatever I have, I have what I need. I have what's meant for me. With Yitzchak, it says, Mikol. And now in our Pasha, uh, Yaakov says, Yeshli Kol. Bakol, Mikol, Kol. Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Hashem, you let them and you gave them that ability to live with that. Give it to us. Sonu, Bless us with that sense of coal that when we're living in life, we too can look out at life. Why do I share that with you, Dafka, today? Because I share it with you. Uh, it's Giving Tuesday, which came after Cyber Monday, which came after Black Friday. Every day now has a, a week. We call it Yom Shlishi B'Shabbos. We are Shomer Shabbos. For us, the days of the week are defined by how we're counting down towards Shabbos. But the world around us is defining the days of the week by what we can buy for ourselves. It's very interesting, Black Friday. You know, Black Friday, where it got its name, it traces itself back to 1951. And it was called Black Friday because people would call in sick. They wanted a long weekend. Thursday, they had off Thanksgiving, and then was the weekend. In order to bridge the gap and get the weekend off, a long weekend, they would call in sick. So they called it Black Friday. Everybody was sick taking the day off. That's the origin of Black Friday. Later, it came caught on the Philadelphia Police Department to describe the congestion, the traffic, Black Friday. The highways were packed because people were going to shop. And now it's Black Friday because... What people are willing to do, they trample one another, they kill one another, they elbow and fight one another in order to buy things. Isn't it amazing? Does it ever strike you the contrast of Thanksgiving, the day where you say, I'm grateful for what I have, and then not one day later, not one day later, it's not I'm grateful for what I have, but 
I don't have enough Black Friday. I need more. I'll elbow and trample and break through glass. I'll go online. I'll, I'll uh, accrue great debt because I don't have enough. So in the world we're living in, we go from Thanksgiving, we go from the day where I say I'm grateful for what I have. Really, it's an attitude of Yeshli Rav. I'm, thank, I'm Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for Yeshli Rav. But clearly, you don't feel Yeshli Kol, or there wouldn't be some of the horrific, embarrassing, shameful behavior on Black Friday. We are the progeny of Yaakov Avinu. We don't say Yeshli Rav. We live with an attitude and mentality. We say Yeshli Kol. The Midas Histapkos. The mentality and the attitude of, I have enough. Whatever I have, it's enough. It doesn't mean I don't have ambition and aspiration. It doesn't mean I don't work harder. It doesn't mean I don't try to do more. It doesn't mean I'm not allowed to treat myself to things. But I do so within a context and a perspective that Hashem has given me what I need, what I deserve, what's right for me, histapkos, and therefore I can live with an attitude of yeshli kol. I always have enough like Yaakov Avinu. Moving right along. Perak Gimel Pasuk Yud Ches. Now they depart ways after this reunion. Yaakov comes whole to Irshchem, and we already described how he was Sholem, Begufo, Bemamono, Besaraso. It's a beautiful Bnei Yisoscher. The Helig of Bnei Yisoscher says something very beautiful. Bnei Yisoscher says, He comes Sholem to Irshchem, and he says, Rashi Tevos, the word Sholem is Shem, Lashon, and Malbush. What does it mean that he came whole? He came with harmony. He came feeling at peace. Here he spent 34 years on the road. 14 Sheva Amber, 20 working for Lavan. He survived Lavan, Tayyag Mitzvah Shemarti. Not he observed them, but either he was committed to community cooperation, collaboration, which is what Tayyag suggests. We can only do it if we do it together. Or as we said, Tayyag Mitzvah Shemarti, Nakiyamti. He continued to learn and he anticipated, look forward. And now after 34 years, he's finally Shalim. He feels whole. He's reconciled. He's no longer afraid of Esav. He's no longer on the run from Esav. He comes to the city of Shechem, Shalem. Says the Helig of Bnei Yisachar of Tzvi Melech Shapira. He says, what does it mean, Shalem? Shalem is a Rashi Teva. Shalem is an acronym for shame, name, Lasho language, and Malbush, dress. And that's what it means. Vayavu Yaakov Shalem Yishchem. Shlemusa Shalko Yehudi. For a Jew to be whole. For a Jew to be Shalem, you have to have a Jewish name and a Jewish way of speaking and a Jewish appearance. That's what it means for a Jew to be whole. Shalem. Shalem, Lashem, Malbush. To be whole, you have to be whole in those three ways. That is what the Bnei Yisachar says. What happens when they get to Shalem? No longer, it doesn't take very long. And Vatetze Dina. Dina goes out. Dina goes out. Is she to blame? She she goes out. She's Basleya. Rashi says, Lobas Yaakov. She's not associated or identified with Yaakov. She's associated and identified with Leia. Why? It's an indictment of Leia. Leia went out and Dina went out. And what does it mean to go out? And this is a comment about women or men or all of us. It's an idea about boundaries. We need boundaries in our lives. And when we violate those boundaries, Men or women, when we violate those boundaries, that's what it means, yatsanis, is to go out. To go out means to be able to pierce through, to be able to break through boundaries. You know, we talk about breaking the glass ceiling, and that's important, and it's lovely, and we should. We're breaking down stereotypes, and we're breaking down barriers, and we're breaking down artificial limits. Break those glass ceilings, but don't break through boundaries. Boundaries are very important. Boundaries keep us moral and ethical. Boundaries keep us loyal 
And when we break those down, when Yatsanis, this quality of Yitzia, of going out, going out beyond the boundaries that are set of appropriateness, of interpersonal, of moral behavior, when we break down those boundaries and Yatsanis, then problems arise. Now that's not to blame the victim. Dina is an absolute victim. And Shechem is the perpetrator. And one never, ever, ever should blame the victim. That's not what Rashi is telling us is the lesson. But Rashi is telling us, however, in response, that we should think about what we do in order to create a moral society, a moral society with strong boundaries that will enable and empower us to be able to live without these dangers. So Dina goes out, and and he rapes her. He wants her. He likes her. Hashtag me too. He violates her. Then he falls in love with her and he says, you know that, I want to continue this. And he says to his father, I want to marry her. Set it up. Call the Shadchan. Send the resume. Get it done. Yaakov hears that his own daughter was raped. And the Chamor comes out to negotiate with Yaakov. And they heard about this. And what do they do? We know the whole story ensues. Torah tells us this whole story of Shimon and Levi. Shimon and Levi take matters into their own hands. They take matters into their own hands. And what do they do? They set up a phenomenal ruse. I don't know, when, when, when you killed the chief nuclear scientist in Iran, come on, do you not swell with pride? Do you not say to yourself, really? There are Jewish people who can sneak into a foreign country and pull off a, a, a episode like that and kill this, this terrible person and get out without anyone seeing them, knowing them, and then never take credit for it. I mean, it's, it's tragic that we need to do that. It's tragic that our people, our sons, have had to learn that skill set and take those risks. But do you not swell with a little bit of pride that they can? So Shimon and Levi say, here's the deal. Shimon and Levi are the, are the commando unit. Shimon and Levi are the elite unit in Yaakov's army. And they say to themselves, we're going to take matters in our own hand. And here's the deal. They say, Shechem, no problem. You can marry our sister. It's a beautiful shidduch. We'll have a fantastic wedding, a big orchestra, shmorg. It's going to be great. But here's the deal. Our sister can't marry somebody who's nishkemalt. Our sister can't marry somebody who doesn't have a bris milah. You and the entire nation need to, need to circumcise yourselves. And when you do, now you're eligible. Now you qualify for our sister. Shechem says, that's all it takes. Shtickle surgery on myself. Painful. But for a woman, for love, I'll do it. Circumcises himself. They all circumcise themselves. On the third day, when they're the most weakest and vulnerable and compromised, Levi and Shimon come and they wipe them out. They destroy them. We only have a few minutes left, but I want to touch on a few ideas within this. Number one idea is, how is that moral or ethical? How is that possible? Collective punishment? Shechem raped Dina. So take Shechem behind the barn and do what you got to do. Pay him back. Make a statement that nobody's ever going to do that to the Jewish people again. But how do you practice collective punishment against all the people of of Shechem, what we call Shechem, Chamor, of that whole city. How is that possible? The Ramban is bothered by this on our parsha, and the Ramban writes, We know later, in Parshas Vayechi, when Yaakov gives brachas to his sons, he calls Shimon and Levi impetuous. He's critical of them. He says, you put all of us in danger, you risked us with your impetuous behavior towards Shechem and Chamor. They should have killed Shechem alone. What right did they have to kill more? So the Ramban quotes the Rambam. He quotes the Rambam. And the Rambam says, you know why? Dinim. One of the Shevaz Metzah B'nai Noach, one of the seven Noachide laws is setting up courts and a system of justice. And the fact that the people of the city didn't hold Shechem accountable, they didn't 
execute justice, pun intended, they therefore themselves became culprits. They became accomplices, and therefore they were deserving. Says the Rambam, one of the seven Noachide laws, you've got to carry out justice. And their failure to carry out justice against Shechem ben Hamor made them accomplices and made them themselves worthy of this attack. Says the Ramban, Nah, I don't buy it. Yaakov should have applauded them. If that were the case, if what they did was right, Yaakov should have given them a big yeshikoach. Why does he become angry at them? So the Ramban gives another answer. The Ramban has his own explanation. But the Maral of Prague on this Pasuk, the Maral against Guri Aryeh, the Maral says the following. He writes, Kosha im Shechem chat kol ha'ir machatu laharog. Shechem made the mistake. Shechem raped Dina. What did the rest of the people of the city do? Where is the ethics of carrying out a collective punishment? And he writes, Nir de lo kasha midi. De lo dami shnei umos kegom b'nei Yisrael v'kananim shem shnei umos. Ulefi chachutu lehem luchum kedin umos shebalucham ha'uma acheres. Sheitira ha-Torah. You know, the Torah has laws of murder. The Torah has laws of self-defense. The Torah has the interpersonal one-on-one laws. But what happens in a war? Why is one army allowed to ever kill the other army? Isn't that an act of murder? So the Maral reminds us that war has entirely different laws than non-war. In a non-war context, there are rules that regulate how we behave with one another. And in a war context, not that all is fair in war and love or war and whatever that quote is, but... There are rules that regulate war also, but in war, there's a different barometer, there's a different threshold. Therefore, the Maharal understands that Shimon and Levi saw themselves at war. When you do that to our sister Dina, we are at war with you. And in war, there's not collective punishment. There's a nation fighting another nation. What were the ethics of dropping the bomb on Hiroshima? What are the ethics of attacking a city which is harboring terrorists, even if innocent civilians may die? What are the ethics? What are the laws? What are the morals of doing so? The Maral says, it depends. There's difference in a one-on-one conflict or a war between nations. In a war between nations, It's true with all wars. War is very different. Rav Shechter quotes his Maral in his Sefer Ikveyatzon. And he talks about the same is true in Israel. If terrorists are shooting rockets from Gaza, and Israel has to figure out how to respond. Is Israel bound by the laws of, of war? Or is Israel bound by the laws of an interpersonal conflict between two people? And the nafkamina, the practical difference is collective punishment. What are the consequences towards civilians? Now Israel, better than any army ever, tries to protect innocent civilians and civilian life. But in the context of war, it does what it has to do. And he writes there, you know, when did, the, when did the War of Independence in the 1948 war end? I once took a group of teens to Israel, and on the bus from the airport, our tour guide turned to those teens and he said, when was the War for Independence? And they knew, they answered 1948. And he said, when did that war end? How did it last? And this one said, this date. This one said, it lasted that long. And he turned to them, I'll never forget, and he said, it hasn't ended yet. That war for Israel's independence has not yet ended. Israel remains, and Rav Shechter here writes, halachically, it remains in a perpetual state of war against its enemies. That war has not ended yet. Mir Tashem, it should in our day, speedily. And he quotes the Ma'arab, and so on and so forth. There are different rules that regulate this. 
all together. Different rules. So that is the question of collective punishment, a very important one. I want to end with one or two more quick points. We learned from here, how old were Shimon and Levi? How old were they when they avenged their sister? How old were they when they stand up to intervene, to intercede, and to say, not on my watch? We have a tradition that they were 13 years old, that they were bar mitzvah. And we see from here that the age of bar mitzvah is 13. If they were 13, and that's when they became men, and they took matters into their own hand. We gave a shir earlier this year in the afternoon called bar mitzvah. If you want to listen, it's on Yu Torah or RabbiEfemGobrik.org, the making of a gadol, what it means to be bar and bat mitzvah, and the fascinating sources. We don't have time to run through all of them. It's a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, and why is it at 13 for a boy and 12 for a girl? Does it have to do with mental maturity, physical maturity? What does it correspond with? And physical maturity, why does physical maturity matter? Why is that age? We went through all these different sources and fascinating, fascinating sources. I wanted to share with you one, which is the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Lubavitcher Rebbe writes in the Sicha, Yudtes Kislev is this coming Shabbos. Lubavitcher Rebbe writes in the Sicha, in the volume 5 of Sicha, on Parshas Vayishlach, it's in the Yiddish, so I won't read it to you, not because you won't understand, but because I will butcher if I try to read to you the Yiddish. But the Lubavitcher Rebbe says the following. He says, you know why you become a Gadol at 13? Just because Shimon and Levi were 13 when they became a Gadol? Because you know what it means to be a Gadol? What it means to be a Gadol is to care about the people around you. To be a katan, to be a minor, is to care only about yourself. A baby, a little baby, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I want to eat, I need my diaper changed, what I want, what I want, what I want. To be a Gadol, to be mature, to reach the age of maturity means to be able to say, it's not what I want. I care about other people. My sister, I'm going to step up and defend her. It's to care about the people around us. It's not a coincidence. The Pasuk says in Shmos, Vayigdal Moshe, Moshe. Moshe became a Gadol. What does it mean to become a Gadol? To go out and see the people around you. And to see their suffering. And to care about it. And to want to intervene and intercede. And to want to make their lives better. That's what it means to be a Gadol. If you only care about yourself... I don't care if you're 100 years old, you're a little baby. And if you're four years old, but you've learned to care about people around you, you are already so showing the signs of maturity. To be a gadol, to be a, a, the age of majority, to be mature, means to see outside yourself, to care outside yourself. That is what Shimon and Levi do. And lastly, because we have not yet said an Imre Chaim. The Imre Chaim, the vision of the Rebbe says, and we'll end with this, on the third day when they were uh, in pain, Shimon and Levi killed all the males. The Maharal asked, and the Ramban asked, and the Rambam asked, and all these different uh, commentators wonder, kill Shechem, what right do you have collective punishment to kill everybody? The Imre Chaim, the vision of the also asked, and he says, Why did the rest of the city agree to be circumcised? They weren't getting Dina as a reward. Why did they agree? Because in order to pursue promiscuity and licentiousness for pleasure of the flesh, they were willing to endure pain of the flesh. It shows who they were all along. And therefore, they need to be wiped out. A people who are Balei Taiva, willing to give in to such lust and temptation, are people that are uh, dangerous, that are um, that are contagious, and therefore they were entitled to get rid of them, and therefore it was in their right. Much more to say, as always, but we end here. Tomorrow morning, we continue at 8.15 with Mesil Sharm, 10 Minutes of Meaning, 8.45, Living with Amuna, and tomorrow night, I know you're waiting to hear who's our guest, we're going behind the beam at 9 p.m. tomorrow night with the one and only Rabbi Yoel Gold. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. He has a big announcement to make about an upcoming video. 9 o'clock tomorrow night behind the Bima. Thank you, as always, to our sponsors. If you would like to sponsor an upcoming week, please email lee at brsonline.org, lee at brsonline.org. Stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.